welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with John Kay, Tony Honigberg and Clive Rostin. Coming up, we'll be speaking to Simon Johnson. He's the chief executive of the Jewish Leadership Council. Together with the Board of Deputies, they've been speaking to the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. We'll be talking about last weekend's London Marathon. Dan Rickman, Elliot Cantor and Lauren Barr all took part. Professor Nathan Abrams is a professor in film and he's got a new book out about the filmmaker Stanley Kubrick. We'll be hearing what he has to say. And we'll be clarifying what school students are actually taught about the Holocaust. Anita Palmer, who's head of the Lessons from Auschwitz project at the Holocaust Educational Trust, will be our guest later on. First, though, before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week. Here's Phil Dave. Thank you. The Board of Deputies and the Jewish Leadership Council have expressed disappointment following a meeting with Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. While the two mainstream Jewish organisations applauded Mr Corbyn's involvement in the landmark two-hour talks, they said that he had failed to agree to any of the concrete actions which they had previously asked for in a letter they sent to him back in March. Speaking after the talks, Mr Corbyn said that his party must recognise anxieties as genuine and not as smears. In other news, the former president of the United Synagogue, Simon Hochhauser, has acknowledged that he is a last-minute candidate to become president of the Board of Deputies. He originally ruled himself out of the running to succeed Board President Jonathan Arkush, who surprised deputies in February by announcing that he would not stand for election for a further three-year period in May. There's been a 30% drop in waiting lists for Jewish secondary school places. The announcement was made by Executive Director of Partnership for Jewish Schools, Rabbi David Mayer. Rabbi Mayer said that a number of factors are responsible for the latest statistics, but most significantly is the additional places offered across the schools. The Berlin Jewish community organised a demonstration against anti-Semitism in response to an attack on an Israeli man wearing a yarmulke, where they urged participants to wear a kippah. A broad coalition from interfaith, political, academic and pro-Israel circles backed the Berlin Wears a Kippah protest located in front of the Jewish community centre in the former West Berlin. Meanwhile, Josef Schuster, the well-respected president of the Central Council of Jews in Germany, has advised his community not to wear a kippah generally for fear of attracting anti-Semitic violence. And finally, dozens of Jewish runners took to the streets of the capital to raise more than £100,000 for Jewish organisations. The London Marathon, which took place on Sunday the 22nd of April, saw participants running the famous 26.2-mile course in record-breaking temperatures. And we'll be finding out about the experiences of just some of those who took part a little later on in the show. Thank you, Phil. First on the Jewish Views this week, we have Jack Mendel, who is the online editor of the Jewish News, and Jack joins us to review your copy of the Jewish News for this week. What's on the front page this week, Jack? On the front page this week is the Jewish News coverage of the Board of Deputies and Jewish Leadership Council's meeting with the Labour leader. Relations between the community and the party finally came to a head. And it was a little bit of a disappointment, according to the two community organisations. They laid down six objectives in a letter to the Labour leader before the meeting, saying that they wanted to achieve concrete steps to tackle anti-Semitism, including him taking personal responsibility and him sorting out the procedural element of 
suspending and expelling people that have been uh, accused of anti-Semitism. And by all accounts, this failed. He wasn't forthcoming in taking any of these issues seriously. He was stalling. The community leaders that I spoke to said that he was wrapping up everything in process. And it's kind of more of the same. It's, it's very disappointing. And there doesn't seem to be a clear next step. I would imagine that coming about 10 days before the London local elections, Jeremy Corbyn would have been very keen to have actually said, I've met with the Jewish community, we agree, we're moving forward, and therefore he and the Labour Party will be disappointed at this outcome. I think there's a, there's a, a number of MPs such as Wes Streeting who have come under severe pressure for standing up for colleagues such as Ruth Smith and Luciana Berger, and they'll face electorates at the next general election. I'm not sure how significant it will be for the local elections. Do you think overall it will make a difference to the Labour Party? It's difficult to say, isn't it? The Labour Party, it, it's undeniable that the, the party itself has, has grown massively. It's, there's, there's more people in the party than there are Jews in Britain mm. at the moment. There's 500,000 people in there. So it's understandable that they'll have some problems adapting to such a big party but nevertheless in tackling these problems you need a leader who is willing to engage and who is willing to take on these issues seriously and from the board and the JLC's statement on Tuesday after the meeting you can see they don't think that and after the meeting Corbyn actually sent out a message on Facebook and Twitter saying that it was a productive meeting so clearly they are completely poles apart they are not seeing eye to eye even though they met face to face and there is a large gap between the two that doesn't look like it's going to close anytime soon. I wonder whether you know when you get two people you sometimes have opposite opinions people see things in different in two different ways and, and I wonder whether that's what's happening the the JLC and the Board of Deputies are seeing it in one in their eyes and Corbyn seeing it from his eyes uh, and we're getting cross cross references here. Uh, absolutely but the the board and the JLC made their intentions extremely clear. They sent a letter to the Labour leader saying, these are six things we want to achieve. And he agreed to meet them and mm. he agreed with them. And then he meets and nothing happens. Mm. So on the one hand, he, he seems to be giving a little bit to meet. And then he, he, doesn't, he doesn't really follow through. He doesn't, he doesn't meet them the whole way. Now, let's look at some of the other issues in the news this week. What's happening in Germany? Last week, a non-Jewish Israeli man was actually attacked in Berlin for wearing a kippah and the response to that has been twofold. One, there's been a rally organised for Wednesday evening in which people have been urged to wear a kippah in solidarity and then the head of the German Jewish community, the equivalent of Germany's Board of Deputies, has actually told people to not wear a kippah for fear of attack. So there's two quite contrasting and interesting reactions to an anti-Semitic attack. When you say anti-Semitic, so it's a non-Jewish Israeli man, so either he was a Christian or a Muslim. Was he doing it to see what response he would get? I understood that he went to Berlin, he was visiting some Jewish Israeli friends, and they were saying how dangerous it is to go out wearing a kippah. And he said, don't be silly, and he borrowed one of their kippahs, went out, and he got attacked. Do you think that there's an anti-Jewish feeling growing in Germany? Well, yes, there's, there's evidence that there is. There's rising anti-Semitism right across the European continent, and you can go to a number of sources for that. There's lots of people collecting data. And these incidents that happen regularly now, 
they're further kind of hard evidence of it and people being told not to wear their kippah is the is the direct result of that and it's a shame that 70 years after the holocaust germany's jews don't feel safe in their own country is this incident coming from somebody from the far right or is it from an islamic extremist the attacker last week was supposedly a syrian asylum seeker who since turned himself in to the police office but there is certainly kind of a three-pronged attack when it comes to anti-semitism in modern europe that comes from the islamist wing the far right which is on the rise at the ballot box and on the streets and as you've seen in the uk the far left the far left is a much newer phenomenon but all three are very potent now whilst we're talking about germany let's talk about ben helfgott who's a holocaust survivor because there's a new book out about ben helfgott yes he he is a holocaust survivor but he's much much more as well ben helfgott there's a new book about him it's been written by michael friedland and if you open the paper this week you can read all about it and karen pollock the chief executive of the Holocaust Educational Trust, has also written a really nice tribute article. Ben Helfgott, for those of you that don't know, and I'm sure that most people do know because he's very well known, not only a Holocaust survivor and an educator, but he was actually an Olympic weightlifting champion. Um, He's a remarkable individual and a, a family man. I indeed go to shore with one of his sons and they're very active as third generation and second generation Holocaust educators in the 45 Aid Society. He's a truly remarkable man, and I I urge you all to go and read this book. That's where we'll have to leave it for this week, but thank you, Jack Mendel, online editor of Jewish News. And don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you've just been hearing, relations between the Labour Party and the Jewish community came to a head this week. The Board of Deputies and Jewish Leadership Council described a meeting with Mr Corbyn as a disappointing, missed opportunity regarding the problem of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Simon Johnson is Chief Executive of the Jewish Leadership Council and joins me now. Simon, that's not how Jeremy Corbyn is describing this meeting, is it? No, we were all in the same room together. And, you know, he said it was a positive, constructive discussion. And at times, it certainly was. He used, you know, some very constructive words. And he did make some statements that were better than he'd done before. And the words used certainly represented a change and there was commitment. However, we did say and continually emphasise during the meeting that words were fine, but we needed to see concrete action. And we had set out some minimum level of actions that would count as concrete action that would satisfy the community in our view. And unfortunately, and we said this during the meeting, it fell short on almost all of those areas. So whilst they did offer some actions, many of the basic things that we asked for that we felt were reasonable were not agreed to, and therefore we described it as disappointing. What were those basic things? Well, interestingly, the discussion was positive 
except when we were discussing these items. So firstly, the fact that we asked for in the meeting a fixed timetable to deal with anti-Semitism cases, including the long-standing cases of Ken Livingstone and Jackie Walker. Now, in the meeting, they said they couldn't give us that overnight. They have now confirmed that. Well, fine, they could have told us that in the meeting and it might have been less disappointing. Did they not even give you a reason for it? They gave lots of reasons of the changes that they were making and there were changes to the complicated structures within the party. And I understood the good faith that they were doing that. But we we continually asked them to commit to a timetable. We didn't mind what that timetable was. They should commit to it and allow us to hold them to it. But they wouldn't do that. The second area, Clive, which I think revealed an ideological difference, was we asked them as part of the education that they committed to do to confirm that they had adopted the full IHRA definition of anti-Semitism together with all the examples and clauses given in that definition. And we felt that that would be a symbolic, important gesture to the community that would carry a great deal of confidence. We asked a number of times in the meeting and they wouldn't agree to it. And in fact, advisors to Mr. Corbyn who were in the meeting were choosing to say that there were ideological problems with that definition. What was so disappointing is that the Chakrabarti report had said that the Labour Party should hold itself to a higher standard than other parts of society on these matters. Well, on the IHRA definition, they are holding themselves to a lower standard by not adopting it than, for example, the Crown Prosecution Service, the police, the Scottish government, the Welsh government, and 132 local authorities who have adopted it. And we were really baffled why they would not agree to that in the meeting. Would you say that what some people do say is that Mr. Corbyn himself is not, he's not anti-Semitic, but he's not terribly pro-Semitic? We emphasised a number of times, we don't believe that he's anti-Semitic at all. And we took him at face value to his word that when he says he is against anti-Semitism, that is indeed the case. And that those who regard it as a smear or make allegations do not do so in his name. We, We said we take him at his word. However, In order to make good to the community and to build trust with the community, there needs to be firm, concrete, visible, confidence-building action. And we emphasized a number of times what we felt that action needed to be. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, they were unable to give us the assurances that we wanted in that meeting. Now, they have agreed that they will see us again in three months. And who knows whether by then they may well have made some progress on those issues or even those ones that we raised, but they did not come forward. And that is why we described the meeting as disappointing. So do you think, as a last question, do you think that there is a chance that they might come round to your way of thinking? Well, the fact that they're willing to see us again in three months, I think is is a constructive step. I, I don't know whether they will. We've made clear what we wanted. What was interesting was overnight, they pushed out the news that They will, in fact, set themselves a timetable at the end of July to withdraw some of the longest standing cases. Well, that is welcome. And it may well be that if they then decide that they will adopt the IHRA definition and they confirm that to us, if they decide to have some form of independent scrutiny of their disciplinary processes, that will be fine. If they agree that members of the Parliamentary Labour Party should not share platforms with people who've been suspended, if they protect and continue to protect Jewish and other MPs who are receiving vile abuse for 
saying that there is anti-Semitism. If they do any of those things, then yes, this will have proved to have been a, a worthwhile exercise. Now, they, they didn't indicate that they would do that in the way we suggested it. Perhaps they will by the time we next come to have meet them. We have said that we would judge them by their actions. So while their words were welcome, we now need to see actions. We'll be watching very closely to see what they do. Simon Johnson, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Clive. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, more than 40,000 people took part in last weekend's London Marathon, including Elliot Cantor, who comes originally from Cardiff and now lives in Mill Hill, Dan Rickman from Radlett, and Lauren Barr from Finchley. They're all with us today. Perhaps, Elliot, you can tell us first of all, why did you run in the marathon? Who was it for? So I ran a marathon for uh, Tenevus Cancer Care. This was in memory of my sister Justine, who sadly passed away from cancer in 2011, and also coincided with the birthdays of my maternal grandmother and my Auntie Rachel, who both also passed away several years ago. Have you ever run in a marathon before? Previous to the marathon, I'd never run really at all outside of football, so this was all new to me. I'd never done a half marathon, a 10k or anything like that. Had you practiced? Yeah, I, I did uh, some training. Uh, Dan helped me a lot through the training, trained throughout the last three or four months. Now, Dan, if you helped him with the training, presumably you've done this before. I've been running on and off since 2013. I did a half marathon there in aid of Magin Davida Dom, but always kind of said, no, I won't do a marathon, that's, that's beyond me. My wife had other ideas. She really pushed me, she encouraged me, and we actually originally signed up to do it together, but unfortunately she had to pull out because of injury, and uh, I was left doing it on my own. And you were raising money for World Jewish Relief? World Jewish Relief and High Cancer Care. Now, Lauren, how come you got involved in this? Oh, a long story. It's, it's actually my 20th marathon. I was running it on my 28th wedding anniversary, and my husband and my two daughters were also running. My two daughters have never done a marathon before. How old are they? They were 24 and 18, and my son, who is he ran it eight years ago when he had just turned 18. So it was going to be like a complete family affair of all five of us becoming London marathoners. Also, we were raising money for North London Hospice. Now, your 20th time, but presumably not as hot as it was last weekend. I have weekend. never, ever run a marathon in that heat. It was extremely brutal. All our training was all done in wind, snow, rain, beast from the east, in the gym on treadmills. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean... Last last summer when I was training for the Berlin Marathon in September and I went to Tel Aviv for a summer holiday and I would never dream of running in the heat of the day, which is what it felt like. All our training in Israel was done early morning and early eve in late evening. So it was just a shock. It was very, very hard and I suffered very badly. Was there plenty of water around? Plenty, plenty of water. But what was just so upsetting was just for me having done so many marathons and just seeing so many people not running I have never seen so many people walking I have never seen so many people collapsing I've never seen so many people go off on stretchers I've never seen so many people crying limping it was quite upsetting and I myself suffered from very bad sunstroke and and I just found it very very difficult I just walked more than I ran in between marathons then do you jog or go to the gym I'm constantly training because I've always got something on the go. I had also just done the Manchester Marathon two weeks earlier, which I had a very an amazing race. I mean, I got my Boston qualification and, and a PB. But London was, it was my sixth London and I have never done it under four hours. And I really, that was my goal, but I just, I just couldn't do it. 
It was really terrible. Really 26 tough. miles in, you know, an average temperature must be very difficult. Elliot, in a way, you're the less practised at this, aren't you? Uh, just playing football rather than, you know, any other involvement in actual running. So is it something that you would think about doing again? I'd probably, uh, in terms of marathons, I'd probably look to do like a London marathon, maybe five or ten years. It's not something I'd do annually. I'd probably do a 10K or a half marathon throughout the years but it's not something i'd pursue constantly to do it's more to do with the fundraising side of things than anything like that how much did you raise i raised just under five thousand pounds and lauren the fact that you've done several marathons in different parts of the world is there an easy marathon and a hard marathon there's no such thing as easy and hard obviously certain races are much hillier than others my manchester marathon two weeks ago was is known to be a very flat course and the weather was perfect it was cloudy you just never know what is going to happen on the day it is just very unpredictable and to be honest with you the hardest part of it is the training i mean the 16 weeks with all the commitment that you give to it and you think oh well, the run's going to be easy but it was just nothing like like on sunday that, so, that was hard. So if you've never done a marathon before and somebody was thinking of doing a marathon, you might be better going to somewhere like Manchester or Holland. Uh, where not it might necessarily. Be I mean, I would say to anybody, you know, just don't go straight in and do a marathon. You know, do park runs, do 5K races, 10K races, half marathon, do everything and build it up and do any. I mean, it's the experience of doing it is life changing. And obviously, if you can do it for charity, all the better. I mean, between myself and my husband over the last seven years of our running I mean we've raised almost 65,000 pounds for charity and we're just so pleased with ourselves for what we've, what we've given back. And which charities? Mostly North London Hospice and High Cancer Care. And Dan, Mo Farah came third, where did you come? 7,687. Not that far. <laughs> it was an achievement to complete it, I would have thought it anyway. Was, yeah, it was. Well, well done to all of you. Dan Rickman, Elliot Cantor and Lauren Barr, thank you very much indeed. Well, I have to say, John, those, those three of them were absolutely amazing. I have take my hat off to them. I think it was fantastic. It's a real achievement to run 26 miles. I mean, it's one thing to actually be involved regularly in sport, but to suddenly decide, as so many of those 40,000 did, they're going to take part in something like a 26-mile marathon is amazing. I mean, to me, I find just jogging up the road or in the park a bit dull. Certainly, I wouldn't be, you know, preparing for something like that. It's when Dan said he came 7,000th and you think, crikey, you're a long way behind. When you think there's 40,000 runners, actually, he was quite a long way near to the front. He was amazing, Incredible. wasn't he? Incredible. And to, I, I love it that they're, it, this is really Jewish, isn't it? They're raising money for charity. It's a very, very Jewish thing to do. I mean, everybody who runs the marathon is raising money for something, but it is such a Jewish thing in your ethos that you do Jewish people do this they said this year because it was so hot not to put funny costumes on and some didn't take any notice of that but I think that adds to it but that must make it even harder to run 26 miles well it, it, 20, normally with a costume on let alone with the heat yes. yeah absolutely I admire all of them I think they were all absolutely all for thousands of runners they all did amazingly. I put your name down for next year, Clive. So. <laughs> no, thank you. I've never run in my life. <laughs> it's certainly worth watching from the comfort of your living room. Absolutely. But that's the closest I'll probably get. You, you and me both, or, and Clive as well, I guess. You know, the three of us can sit there and watch it together next year. <laughs> God willing. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk 
On Facebook, go to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And on the line, I have Professor Nathan Abrams, who is Professor in Film at Bangor University in North Wales. And Professor Nathan Abrahams is about to launch his new book at JW3, which is called Stanley Kubrick, New York Jewish Intellectual. I understand that... We, we know a bit about Stanley Kubrick, I and mean, most people remember him for 2001, Clockwork Orange and The Shining, but of course he did lots of other films as well, which we can talk about a little bit later. But tell me a bit about your book. Yeah, uh, he did 13 feature films in total and, and some photography before that. So what my book traces is Stanley Kubrick's kind of ethnic and intellectual heritage from his earliest photographs through to his final film, Eyes Wide Shut. And I really concentrate on his Jewish background in New York. And I heavily concentrated on using archives as well. So this isn't just a kind of textual reading. There's a lot of archival work in there looking at his actual personal papers. Tell me a bit about his background. I know his father was a doctor, but tell me a bit about his background. Yeah, his father was a doctor. He was born in 1928 in the Bronx. He grew up in a heavily Jewish area of New York. And he had his formative years there. So he went to high school there. His, his early circle of friends came from the Bronx and from high school. And these turned into his later collaborators when he made his first, first documentary, later feature films. He kind of graduated high school with terrible grades. So he couldn't go into the family occupation of being a doctor, even though his dad wanted him to. And instead, he got a job working full time for Look Magazine based on a photograph of marking the death of FDR in 1945. And then he moved to, the, to Greenwich Village, which at that point was a kind of heart of New York's bohemian intellectual and Jewish culture. Mm. And he kind of had a sort of, he was self-taught at that point, an autodidact, watched everything he could, read everything he could. Uh, and that's really where he got his filmic education from. He also, I understand, played drums in a jazz band. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. With he a singer, Edie Gourmet. He was a keen jazz drummer, would have liked to have done that, as well as a photographer and a chess player. All three things arguably influenced how he made films. Going from photography, which is what he did, into moving film, how did he, what was his transition into that? How did he go about that? Well, he was watching films in the cinema and he just thought, I could do a, a job as, <laughs> as good, if not better than that. So he, he hired a movie camera. Someone told him how to use it. He took the movie camera. Well, this is his first feature film, and he went out to Los Angeles and shot his first feature film. Prior to that, just going back a few years, he took one of his photo stories for Look magazine called The Prize Fighter about a, a boxer and his brother who was his manager. And um, he turned, he took the blueprint of the, photo, of the article and turned it into a documentary, which he then sold. And then on the back of that, made a second one called Flying Padre, and off the back of that, that's when he made his first feature film, Fear and Desire. And in the meantime, he was commissioned to do a documentary about the Seafarers Union. union. Uh, and this, this sort of early work has been largely forgotten, but it's very interesting because when you look at it, you can see a lot of what would come out later in his films in these kind of juvenile efforts. Why were you particularly interested, Nathan, in putting a book together about Stanley Kubrick? Well, I don't know where my first started 
my interest in Stanley Kubrick. The first film of his I saw in the cinema, this will tell you my age, was Full Metal Jacket in 1987. And then I saw Eyes Wide Shut in nineteen ninety. So the only two films I saw in the cinema. And I remember by Eyes Wide Shut, I was a fan. And when I moved to Bangor in 2006, I was asked to put on a module. And I thought, well, no one ever teaches directors. We teach genres. We teach periods. We very rarely teach directors like we might teach authors in English literature. And I thought, well, Kubrick would be interesting because he only did 13 films and they cover every genre apart from Westerns. And so that's a nice compact way to cover it. Now, I've been teaching that since 2007. And, and during that time, I couldn't find an original angle. You know, it was like, what, what's new to say? And it, it struck me back in 2011, his Jewishness. You know, this is something that's there that hasn't really been addressed because most people just assume because he didn't practice anything that it doesn't show up in his film. So that's really where the trajectory of this book came from. Where does the actual Jewishness appear in his films? Well, <laughs> that's a contentious point. I mean, Kubrick came out of that sort of mid-century studio system tradition, when it precedes mid-century, where Jewish moguls took the Jewishness out of their films. But, you know, people... People understood Kirk Douglas to be Isia Danilovich and Tony Curtis to be Bernie Schwartz. They didn't need to be told. So the, the argument I make is it's kind of beneath the surface. You know, if you know the culture he grew up in, the, the texts he was reading, what's going on in the period, and you, and you relate it to that, you can see clear connections, even if it's nowhere explicit. So his first movie, Fear and Desire, hmm. is a platoon movie not unlike what Norman Mailer was writing or Leon Uris or, or the other Jewish writers were writing in the immediate post-war era. So I'm trying to make an argument. I can't prove it because with Kubrick, you can't really prove very much because he left you to make up your own mind about his films. But what I'm trying to say is put him in his intellectual, cultural context. Look at what other people like him are doing, like Joseph Heller with Catch-22, and it becomes clear that there are connections. It's back to the writers of Superman, isn't it? You know, where uh, the Jewish writers were Superman and uh, they, they sort of translate that into how Jewish Superman's actions were and saving the world and everything else. I suppose that's yeah. a bit the same as Stanley Kubrick, you know. Yeah, no, precisely. I mean, you know, most people wouldn't understand Superman as Jewish, but most Jews would, uh, you know, as Michael Shabon famously wrote, Clark Kent, only a Jew would pick a name like that. Yeah, exactly. There you go. He was, of course, responsible for the film that was banned in the UK for being too racy, which was, of course, A Clockwork Orange, later on shown. Didn't he, didn't he pull that, though, from, from being shown himself? Yeah, exactly. It, um, it, it wasn't banned. He withdrew it. He had mm. one too many death threats. He said, I can't, I can't handle this. The interesting thing is the fact that Kubrick could ask for his film to be pulled in a major market and it was done just a sign Shows of how the powerful power. it was. Exactly. And, and he was the most independent director in commercial cinema ever. And, and that's a sign of it. And interesting, that's the, that's the other film I saw on the big screen, but I only saw it after he died in the cinema in Turnpike Lane, if it's still there. <laughs> and previously, I, I had to watch it with Dutch subtitles. I understand that the, the library that he had in his house... I think it was his wife or his children were, were going through and logging it all because there was so much stuff that they didn't even know he had. I'm not surprised. I mean, he was a hoarder. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to his archive in, in Elephant and Castle, you know, there's all kinds of things in there that, that he kept. I mean, you really don't just find out about how he made his films. You find out about 
him you know the attention yeah. to detail not just on his films but on like on on, on home alarm installment or his pets you know there really is kind of everything there and his book collection was phenomenal i mean he read and skimmed huge amounts I mean, one of the things i'm interested in, obviously is just the number of books he's got in the holocaust which i think he read continuously throughout his career not just in preparation for the movie that he never made Aryan papers it was just his interest he just had the interest in it and uh, wanted to be accurate i guess yeah he had the interest i mean what i argue in the book is he had the interest yeah. of a new york jewish intellectual which yeah. is the you know, Holocaust is one of them. Civil rights would be another. Social justice, the nature of evil, the nature of humanity. You know, questions that I argue are integral to Jewishness over 2,000 years interested Kubrick in the 20th century. Professor Nathan Abrahams, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us here on The Jewish Views. Well, thank you very much. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, out of last week's programme, somebody made a comment that implied that Holocaust education won't necessarily be taught in schools anymore. Well, let's clarify that situation now, shall we? Anita Palmer is head of the Lessons from Auschwitz project at the Holocaust Educational Trust. Anita, what's happening in schools and how is the Holocaust taught? Well, the Holocaust has been part of the national curriculum as a result of the efforts of the Holocaust Educational Trust. One of our first successes was to ensure that it formed part of the curriculum, which it does in schools in England, and this has been the case since 1991. What age the are we talking about, Anita? The Holocaust is taught at key stage three, so in 13 and 14, typically when they're sort of in the third year of secondary school or year nine is, is usually where it's taught. That's where it sort of fits within the history curriculum. So that's in every school, is it? That's in, it's mandatory in schools in England. And that's in every school, obviously, schools which are academies, they, they're not bound by the national curriculum. But our understanding is that many of them in the spirit of good practice would follow the national curriculum. And what about Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland? Why is it different there? Obviously, that you know, there's a different sort of government in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But our understanding is there's no formal requirement there. But many schools in these regions do participate in the many sort of programmes that we deliver in the Holocaust, at the Holocaust Education Trust. And therefore, the, the indications are that it is also taught there in, in those regions as well. Is it taught completely and utterly about the Holocaust or is it just sort of will just give you an idea of what the Holocaust was. Well, you know, the teaching of the Holocaust will vary from school to school, as will the teaching of English or maths or, you know, physics. It does, it is sort of named within the national curriculum. It does appear as the Holocaust. It's not sort of, you know, broadly within sort of 20th century history. The work that we do with teachers suggests that it is taught as a unique subject within itself, not only in history, but also sort of, there's a cross-curricular approach in many schools where it can also be sort of touched upon in other subjects such as religious education or English as well. There used to be a scheme where two pupils, usually a girl and a boy, from each school would be sent to Auschwitz and then come back and tell the other pupils and their school about their visit there. Does that still go on? Yes, you, you refer to the Lessons from Auschwitz project, which is a project that I head up at the Trust. It's a programme that's open to students in England, Scotland and Wales. It's a government-funded, government-supported programme. And essentially, it is open to two sixth-form students 
in each school and college across the country. We do leave it to the teacher to decide which two students they put forward. We obviously give them guidance and advice. But the two students take essentially what is a four-part course. The projects are delivered regionally, but the two students from each school will attend an orientation seminar where they will hear from a Holocaust survivor. They will learn about pre-war Jewish life and talk about their expectations of visiting a site such as Auschwitz. Approximately a week to 10 days later, they will go on a one-day visit to Auschwitz, visit the camp there, have a tour of both Auschwitz and Birkenau with educators that have been trained by the Trust as well as a guide from the museum. And on their return, the two students then attend a follow-up seminar where they debrief, they reflect on what they've seen, what they've experienced. But more importantly, they are tasked with then going back into their schools and communities and passing on what they've learned. So the project really does have a ripple effect, even though it is two students from each school or college. They go back and disseminate what they've experienced and what they feel the key messages are from this from this experience to their peers and their local community. How do you find the reaction of the children that learn about the Holocaust in the schools? I mean, I, I work very closely on lessons from Auschwitz, and I also, you know, meet students that I've heard from survivors. I think an, an experience such as lessons from Auschwitz does make the Holocaust more real, more tangible. Yes, they learn about the Holocaust in schools. They may read a textbook or watch a film, but through something like lessons from Auschwitz, they're you know visiting an authentic site. They're they're confronting sort of what happened during the Holocaust. They have an opportunity to hear a survivor. And our other core project is that we do arrange for survivors to go into schools and share their testimony. And again, I think hearing from a witness makes this period of history more comprehensible, more understandable. They can relate to the story of one person as opposed to just sort of, for example, looking at the sheer scale. When you look at numbers, yes, numbers are important, and it's important that they understand that, you know, six million Jews were killed as a result of the Holocaust. But sometimes that that can be difficult to, to completely comprehend and understand that those huge numbers. So the work that we do that we do in terms of lessons from Auschwitz, through our outreach programme by giving students the opportunity to hear a survivor, I think has a huge impact and really does impact on their understanding of this period of history. There was a report out that suggested that some schools were reluctant to teach about the Holocaust through some sort of fear of maybe offending other minority communities or or not teaching about their experience in comparison with the Holocaust. What's your experience of how schools react generally to the subject of the Holocaust? I think I know the the report that you're referring to, and I think at the back of the report, there was one sentence that I think it was a piece of anecdotal evidence where one teacher had said they felt nervous or cautious about teaching the Holocaust to their students because I think they had a high proportion of students from a Muslim background. We work with teachers to equip them to teach this sensitive subject in an effective way, to give them the tools to to teach this subject in the classroom. So we have teacher training programs for teachers across the country. And I guess going back to your original question, I think once teachers are skilled and are equipped, they feel more confident moving forward and delivering this subject matter and obviously are reaching students from across different backgrounds. Again, you know, going back to lessons from Auschwitz, we take students from a variety of different backgrounds 
the majority of the students we work with are not Jewish and come from, you know, different faiths and different sort of socio and economic backgrounds as well. And presumably some of them knew absolutely nothing about the Holocaust until the teaching started. Well, again, this is going to vary from sort of school to school and student to student. We also, you know, work with primary students and primary teachers. They would have looked at the Holocaust perhaps when they were 13 or 14. But the students that we're working with when they are 16, we understand that, you know, they may have looked at the Holocaust three or four years ago. We do give them that sort of grounding, that background, that preparation is so important before they do visit a site such as Auschwitz. Anita Palmer from the Holocaust Educational Trust, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Jewish Views this week. Thank you. That's nearly it for this episode of The Jewish Views, but it's time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. We're in a very fascinating period of the year. Now, of course, it's the Omer, but in some ways that's not the period I'm talking about. The Omer itself is a period of semi-mourning, when we mourn the deaths of Rabbi Akiva's students. 24,000 died 2,000 years ago. But of course, it's not the major mourning period of the year. That is reserved for the three weeks, the nine days, and of course, culminating to Shabbat in the summer, where we mourn destruction of the temple and the exile of Jewish people from the land of Israel. And why I find that period so remarkable in terms of today is because we're currently in another three-week period. And it's the period from Yom Atzma'ut to Yom Rushalayim. Three weeks of celebration of, in essence, the reverse of what happened 2,000 years ago, when the 70th of Tammuz remembers the beginning of the destruction of Jerusalem, and the 9th of Av is the date when the temples were destroyed and the Jews were exiled. We now have, in the modern era, a return to the Jewish state in 1948 and a return to Jerusalem in 1967. And therefore, it's ironic that in the weeks of the Omer, which is a semi-morning period for the Jewish people, here we have days of celebration of Yom Atzmut, Yom Yerushalayim, celebrating the modern miracle of the return of the Jewish people. And here in Mizrahi, we use this time not only to celebrate the festivals of Yom Atzmut and Yom Yerushalayim with major events of singing and dancing, but also to have a major educational event during that time. We call it the Weekend of Inspiration. We bring over 20 educators, top educators from Israel, to inspire communities up and down the country. On Shabbat the 28th of April, they'll be in 40 communities all across England. And on the 29th of April, gathering together for a day of learning and inspiration at Kinloss Synagogue. It really is a time to celebrate what we've achieved as a nation, We've never stopped dreaming, never stopped believing we've returned to Israel and to Jerusalem. And now here in 2018, 70 years of the State of Israel, it's a time to celebrate with a day of Jewish learning, a day of Jewish living, and a day of Jewish inspiration. Thank you to Rabbi Andrew Shaw for our thought for the week. That's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thanks to our guest, Simon Johnson from the Jewish Leadership Council, runners Dan Rickman, Elliot Cantor, and Lauren Barr, Professor Nathan Abrams, the author of a new book on Stanley Kubrick, and Anita Palmer from the Holocaust Educational Trust. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, John Kay. And Tony Honigberg. And me, Clive Roslin. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Bye-bye.